Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone, and I'm back with another summer reading edition of 30 with Murdy. This time, I speak to both David Cohn and Jack Curry about their collaboration, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. It's available now everywhere books are sold, printed by Grand Central Publishing. This is truly a wonderful effort in teamwork. Cohn with the knowledgeable and down-to-earth pitching mind, and Curry, the thoughtful and eloquent writer. I sat down with both men separately in my office at Yankee Stadium. You will hear from Cohn in just a little bit, but we begin with Jack Curry, a friend and colleague for almost two decades. A mainstay at the Yes Network for over 10 years now, Curry was a standout reporter and writer at the New York Times before that. His long working history with Cohn and their mutual admiration really comes through in these conversations. Here is part one of our episode with Yes Network's Jack Curry. Jack, you've known David Cohn a long time, so why now? What made this the opportunity to write this book with him? Sweeney, this started a few years back, but it probably started more than 20 years ago because I've always felt that in watching David, more than any other pitcher I ever covered, the wheels were always turning. When you watched him on the mound, those eyes looked crazy. His mannerisms looked like he was out there ready to just strangle somebody. But within that, there was a lot of talent and a lot of wisdom and a lot of creativity. So I think many years ago, I thought about, wow, it'd be pretty cool to write a book with Coney and and try and dive inside his mind. And after all those years of watching him and all these years now of working with him at Yes, I finally approached him a few years back, told him exactly what I just said to you and how I'd like to get inside his mind because I don't think readers know what it's like to be a major league pitcher when times are great and when times are not so great. David loved the idea, and and that was our goal, and and I think we succeeded in doing that. So I have a feeling that as you went through this with him and you recounted all the details of his career and his life, I feel like why is the question you asked him more than any other question as I'm reading this book. Is that accurate? I I think you're absolutely right, and I also think that what you find out in interviewing David, and this is probably true for a lot of athletes, but it was definitely true for David— the, the wonderful moments are there, and the perfect game, and he loves talking about that. But the moments of despair and the moments of doubt and the moments of desperation, I think that's what helps make this book special, is that there's a, an honesty in there. That David won 194 games, won a Cy Young Award, won five World Series titles. But there are a lot of points in this book where we point out that he was a lost soul on the mound. And it might have been for one inning, it might have been for three starts in a row, or it might have been for a whole season in 2000. But... I think that's the part of the book that fans will find appealing, that you just don't walk out there every day and have 95-plus on your fastball and a nasty slider and a nasty splitter. There are some days where you feel like you're naked out there and you don't have any of that. I feel like I'm not the only person that's read these two books, but I'm the only person who's read these two books in the last month. Uh, Roger Angel wrote a book with David's cooperation in 2001. It came out called A Pitcher's Story. Uh, I'm sure it was a reference point for you uh, uh, to some degree, but how is this book different from that one? I I loved Roger Angel's book, and I love Roger. 
He capsulized that one season with David, although he did go back in history and, and mm-hmm. he covers David's, David's career. I think that this book gets inside David's mind a little deeper and, and goes into a lot of specifics on certain games and certain moments and certain memories. We highlight a lot of David's relationship with his father, which Roger did too. Roger brings that out as well. The last thing I want to do is is have our book compete with Roger Angel yeah. because Roger Angel is the epitome of, of baseball writing. But David kept coming back to the word honesty and, and vulnerable. And what he likes about this book is he feels that it shows all of those characteristics. And as great as Roger's book was, this book is written in David's voice. This These are David's words. Yes, I had to piece them together. But I'm telling you, Sweeney, after an interview, my goal was to I want to take this interview turn it into a chapter, but I want it to sound like it's David saying that. And several people who are close with David have already told me that they feel as if it sounds like David wrote this. So I think that's what makes this book special. Also, David's book, uh, Roger's book, focused centrally on David, of course. We try and take you around to other parts of David's career. Stories about Jeter, stories about Mariano, stories about Hernandez and Gooden and Strawberry with the uh, Mets. And then Gooden and Strawberry with the Yankees, George Steinbrenner stories, and that's what I think sets this book apart too. You know, it's funny now that you're saying it that way. It kind of sits uh, sits with me this way. It would be like if you were just sitting at a bar having drinks with David Cohn, and you start talking baseball with him. It wouldn't just be about him. It would be about all the people he played with and all the stories that go with it. It's very interesting that you say that, Sweeney, because this was a long process. Writing a book takes a long time, and we were about ninety percent of the way through with what we wanted to cover. And we worked with a great editor named Sean Desmond, and he had read one of the drafts, and he said, do you know what I think is missing? He said, David pitched for the Yankees for six years, and and Steinbrenner loved him. There's not a lot of Steinbrenner content in there. I asked David for some Steinbrenner stories. He turns on the faucet and produces about six or seven epic stories, fail on me as a reporter that that I hadn't generated these stories out of him earlier. But that's the kind of thing I think we're talking about. Like you said, if you're sitting at a bar with a guy, yeah, you want to talk about the grip on your slider and this is what you did with a splitter. And remember that time I struck out Tony Gwynn or whatever. But how about the time where Steinbrenner didn't like the buzzing coming out of a soda machine in the clubhouse and on hands, hands and knees with a blue blazer on, reached behind the thing and unplugged it. So there's there's a lot of funny stories like that in there too. There are, now you you knew David better than I do even before you wrote this book. But one of the things that I was taken aback by is either one how much it happened and two how willing he was to describe it. How much physical pain he seemed to be in at various times during the course of his career. It takes a lot of work to get an athlete's body ready to perform at that level. He seemed to take you through parts where it was an effort. It was literally painstaking to try to get him through his career. Did you find that as as maybe as I don't know what the right word is, but it just I was taken aback by how much pain he seemed to be going through during his career. That's a great pickup by you. And interestingly enough, we originally had a chapter or half a chapter where we kind of talked about knowing the difference between pain and an injury. And David is big on that, that sometimes you're going to have to pitch with a little bit of pain in your shoulder and, and that's there. It's, it's not an injury. You don't have a rotator cuff tear. So yes, in some ways I was surprised, Sweeney, and in some ways I was not surprised because I think back to the way he he had to deal with uh, all the issues after 95 when he throws 147 pitches and 
then the next spring he gets the aneurysm. So I guess I always knew that there was a, a mortality about him and, and a pain, well, it was a mortality about all of us, mm-hmm. but a pain that he had to deal with. So I wasn't shocked by it, but to your point, he, go, he does go into great detail and he does remind you that on every morning of his major league career, he woke up in the morning and the first thing he did before he brushed his teeth, before he took a glass of water, right, and you're doing it, yeah. this is radio, but yeah. he basically rotated his right shoulder and that was the sign of whether or not that was going to be a good day or a bad day. If he didn't feel anything, if nothing was cracking, he's le- he said, okay, I'm a major league pitcher today. If he felt something, he be- okay, do I need two Advil? Do I need to get the ballpark yeah. early and get a massage? Do I need to not long toss today? Maybe today's a swimming day. And I'm trying to think of other professions and leaving athletes out of it. I mean, you and I use our voices for a living. I don't think that I wake up every morning and say, me, 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 me. (laughs) But that's essentially what David Uh, was doing. You got to watch the perfect game with him, correct? Is that, I mean... I, I'm thinking back. I remember an experience I had during an old-timers day broadcast here a couple of years ago, and Max Scherzer was actually pitching a perfect game, and David was in the dugout. We're doing our show interviewing guys, and I kept thinking how cool it was that I got to keep popping back to Coney and saying, David, he's through seven. Like live on the air, I'd say, David, he's through seven. What do you think? And I'm watching with him on my phone the ninth inning as, as he loses the perfect game, I think, but gets the no-hitter. And I thought that was a cool experience getting to do it with him. Getting to rewatch with him his entire perfect game must have been a completely different experience altogether. Probably the coolest experience that I had in working on this book. And I want to give my wife Pamela props because we always knew we were going to do a perfect game chapter, David and I. But it was one of those ones I left off to the side because mm-hmm. let's get some of the other nitty gritty chapters done. We know we're going to talk about the perfect game. One night I said to Pamela, I need to make this perfect game chapter different. And why I didn't think of this, I don't know, but she did. She's the smarter one. And she said, why don't you and David sit down and rewatch the game? And I thought, of of course. (laughs) So I think both you and I being in the New York market as long as we have been, you always want people to view you as professional and objective. And there's always a level of being a little jaded. We've covered so many things. That day, I have to tell you, you're sitting down with one of the few people who have pitched a perfect game and he's sitting in your house and you're watching that game with him I have to say a a little bit of the little boy came out in me Mm -hmm. a a little bit of the fan came out in me especially Sweeney as the game starts to accelerate and now we're in the sixth inning and now we're in the seventh inning and David is sitting next to me in my house and even he's kind of leaning up in his (laughs) chair a little bit and we all know what is going to happen but for instance, oh gosh, I forget what inning it was. It was the fifth or the sixth, I guess, fifth maybe, where, where Vidro hits a rocket up the middle. And uh, Knobloch, who had had a mm. ton of throwing yips that spring, uh, that season, ranges to his right to make the play and then has to throw a bullet to first to get him and does it perfectly. David and I re-watching that, you're almost, you're almost still wondering, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? So we actually finished watching that game. The interview was done. And then David hung out for about another hour in my house, and we just talked a little more yeah. about it. And all of that all of that not only appeared in the book, but that session, that reporting session, gave me the introduction to the book because David did something he had never done in his career before. And I'll give it away. Hopefully people will still go by the book. Yeah. But after eight innings, he went back up to the clubhouse and talked to himself in the mirror. And in true David fashion, it wasn't, you can do this, buddy. It was, you better not blow this. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing he said to himself. 
is a fantastic look back and you come back to it a couple of times as kind of a, uh, a focal point of the entire book. The book is called Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. It's from Grand Central Publishing. You'll hear from David Cohn in a little bit. This is Jack Curry who wrote the book with him. The meat of this book is all that goes into being a pitcher, the mental approach, the catcher relationships, the umpire relationships, outthinking the hitter. That part was extremely fun to read. Was it fun to write? Uh, absolutely. I, I love talking pitching with David Cohn. And I, I love the idea, Sweeney, as I said to you earlier. I think this book is, is a book that if you're a baseball fan and you want to know what it's like to be out there on the mound, this book is for you. And that's what I was trying to bring forward in that chapter because I love the fact that David would think three, four, five, six pitches, maybe not six. You hope the at-bat's over by then. Two, three, four pitches ahead or batters ahead. And I love that he took me into those strategic moments. If you look at his postseason numbers, his strikeout-to-walk ratio was not great, and that was intentional. David said that when he got to the postseason and the games mattered the most, he might pitch around the seventh guy in the order because here comes the number eight guy, here comes the number nine guy. I can get those guys out. So I loved him sort of taking us inside his mind, inside his strategies. He gives a ton of philosophies in here that we only have so much time, you and I, to discuss this here. But basically, I ran some of his philosophies past very successful current major league pitchers. Mm -hmm. And I got bulging eyes looking back at me saying, really? That's how he did it? Wow, that's interesting. And real quickly, one of them was pitching poorly to a batter's strength. If you know a guy is a good inside fastball hitter, and that's the pitch he's keying on, Cone would throw it inside, but he'd throw it at the guy's belly button. So the guy would open up and almost think, here it comes, the inside fastball I want. By the time he swings, he either swings over it or he fouls it off. You just stole a strike. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about talking to other pitchers because one of the things I took from this is that there are a lot of lessons in here for today's pitchers weaved into his own stories from the past. And it seems to me that David, and this comes across in the broadcast too or even just talking to him, he seems to appreciate today's athletes more than look down on them. You know, I mean, he's watching it kind of as a fan too. 100%. And I think David talks uh, Sweeney too about how we know his pitch counts and how deep he would go into games. He's talked about how the current pitcher, now he wishes they that pitch counts were, were larger, and he he even uses the word coddled at one point, that he understands you want to protect your pitchers, but he thinks they're a little coddled. He thinks it's tougher to, to be a major league pitcher in the way that you've got to be efficient now. Right. You want to get through seven innings, you better average 15 pitches an inning because for the most part, I mean, look at the Yankee bullpen. You and I cover this team. You know that. Tanaka could be, what did he have, 73 pitches? Yeah. At the date we're taping this, mm-hmm. I don't know, a week ago, he had 73 pitches. And after seven innings, the Yankees had some big arms coming out of the bullpen. Here you go. See ya. Well, one of the things he mentions is about like intentionally bouncing curveballs yes. or intentionally throwing high fastballs. And that's something that you I don't know if anybody can really afford to do right now, but that's wasting pitches. It is. It is. I think his intent with the bouncing curveballs, though, was that was going to get you a strike, that a guy would be so keyed up and so eager, you can get a bad swing from him. I think he looked at it more in that way, but you are right. Every every pitch is precious. David held that philosophy even when he was a, a pitcher. He hated wasting pitches on 0-2. He, he liked the idea 
of going after hitters. It's one of the reasons he and Girardi got along so well because Girardi was the same way. We don't need to throw something up and in here and then throw a slider outside. Let's let's throw your best pitch on 0-2 and go get the guy. The education of a pitcher. I love the the subtitle to this because one of the things to me it seems is that so many lessons he learned were from either failure or a perception of failure. The 1995 playoffs where he you keep coming back to the walk to Doug Strange and how he beats himself up with that. Whether it's being injured, being traded, a miserable 2000 season. Even the perfect game to some degree has failure around it because of what you mentioned. I'm looking in the mirror and saying, don't blow this. Uh, did you get the feeling that either failure or fear of failure, even as, as brash as he was, seemed to be a motivation for him? Yes, a lot of times, Sweeney, when we spoke couple of the words that he used to describe himself on the mound were desperate and manic. He said, I had a desperate approach to get out of that inning, whatever it took. I needed to find that one pitch that was going to get me through. So yes, he was absolutely motivated by fear of failure. You don't want to be embarrassed out there. First of all, as a pitcher, you want to be the king of the hill. You you pursue that job. You've got the big ego. Give me the ball. Then once you get out there, the last thing you want to do is embarrass yourself. And I think he was motivated. There's a great chapter in the book about toughness, his failures in the 88 NLCS, stumbles mightily in game two, all linked to the column he had ghostwritten for the Daily News, bounces back less than a week later in game six and, and pitches an absolute gem. And he says from that moment on, he, he never really felt that he would have to deal with a bigger issue than he had dealt with in game two. So tell me what your favorite story was that you'd never heard before from David Cohn. That, that, wow, you just put me on the spot. My favorite story. I love the Steinbrenner stories because having covered George myself, I, I love that David was able to tweak George <laughs> and tease George a little bit because George was a tough boss. George was a demanding boss. And if you asked the Yankees from the 70s, Willie Randolph, Ron Guidry, Rich Gossage, did you ever get a chance to tease uh, Reggie Jackson? Did you ever tease Egg George? Shells, yes, yeah. they would say, are you kidding me? So so I love that, and, and I loved him talking about his relationship with the various catchers that he had throughout his career because David will admit he was strong-willed, he was tough to catch, and it was going to be a challenge for some catchers if you didn't follow his way. It was a little bit of an interesting dynamic because David wanted to be in charge, but he also wanted you to be a co-pilot. That's why Girardi was perked for it perfect. Girardi never took any of that stuff personally, whereas in the book we talk about how David and and Jorge clashed. He and Posada did not have a good relationship. I interviewed Posada about it. It's all in the book. He acknowledges it, but those were some of the things that really stood out for me. Yeah, I think the other thing, and I should point out that the book is called Full Count, Education of a Pitcher. It's not David Cohn with Jack Curry. It's David Cohn and Jack Curry. I think part is the reporting you talked about. You went back, you talked to Joe Girardi, you talked to Jorge Posada, you talked to Tom Glavin, you talked to Ryan Sandberg, and I think I think you even called back from some of your archives from some of the things you had written in the past uh, in all the years of the New York Times. So it's a it's kind of a combo job all written in David's voice. Jack, you did a fantastic job on this. Thanks for sharing a couple of minutes with you. Your co-pilot is coming along in a few moments, and we'll talk to him too. Thanks for sharing your, your views on it. Thanks so much, Sweeney. Thanks for having me, and also appreciate you uh, popping us a few times on social media about the book. Very much appreciate it, and as always, man, you're, you're a friend more than you're the guy interviewing me, so this was a blast. And now, time to hear from David Cohn himself. 
I never covered Cone on a daily basis as a player, but in my first job at WFAN as a producer and later as a weekend fill-in for Susan Waldman at the stadium, I frequently spoke to David either over the phone or in person, and he was always friendly and engaging. Cone even has claimed to remember me nervously walking over to his locker with a microphone and tape recorder back in 1995, uh, one of my first days at the stadium, and he's probably not far off in his description. This time we focus on the ideas behind the book and the themes that are central to it throughout, including discipline, trust, and insecurities, which are all interwoven in his story. Here's part two of our episode, my conversation with David Cohn. David, my first thought after I read this book was that I felt like this is the book that you hoped Roger Angel was going to write when he followed you around in 2000, but the season, the way that turned out for you, it turned into a different kind of book. But all the background information about you and your family and how you came up in this league and, and what you were trying to do on the mound, I felt like that's what that book was initially intended to be. And maybe you collaborated with Jack here to kind of uh, get the book that you originally wanted to have come out. Yeah, that that's a great point, Sweeney. Uh, it, that, that's certainly part of it. You know, the year 2000 was a tough, tough year for me, and Roger Angel's a fantastic writer, and it was kind of his book, and, yeah. and so, you know, I certainly, you know, paid respect to that, but now, with the benefit of hindsight, now 10 years as a broadcaster, I thought I had a little different perspective on things and could revisit some some areas, uh, good, bad, and ugly. I think that's the best part of the book, you know, that Jack, Jack Curry did so well, was kind of make it real and honest and raw, and kind of own up to some things that uh, that weren't so good at times. Yeah, I felt like you you owned up to these things, and, and not even just hindsight either. It felt like as, as I was reading him, and you, and you genuinely felt in the moment that whatever bad things happened, the next day you were apologetic about it and really felt kind of sheepish about everything. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I, that's part of the, uh, the the thread in the book is, is about, uh, you know, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay mm-hmm. to be wrong. It's okay to admit you're wrong, and it's okay to have a, a teachable moment in there too, as well. And uh, whether it's a catcher relationship with Jorge Posada or Joe Girardi, or contrasting the two, or or different stories throughout the book, uh, there's so many little nuggets in there that I'm really proud of. And uh, I, I think it's a unique uh, a unique take, not your typical baseball autobiographical style of book. And as we near Father's Day, what struck me is. This is a father-son story. It's threaded throughout. The relationship you have with your dad is, and it's probably not unusual for a baseball player, but it seemed to really resonate with you, and you seem to really drive that home in the book. Yeah, it was really important to me. And um, my father was a blue-collar guy. You know, I mentioned it in the book quite a bit. Uh, he worked a graveyard shift, and he still found time to coach me. And he was really was the best coach I ever had, even up to the end. Uh, his words of wisdom were always there, and. The foundation that he provided for me at a very young age is something that uh, that I'm just so appreciative, uh, so appreciative of. Especially the further removed I get from it, and now that I'm a father, I see the sacrifices that he made. Two things that he told you that sound like they're as good as anything any pitching coach could tell you. One, every pitch with a purpose. What does that mean? That means don't goof around because a lot of times he would catch me goofing around and trying to emulate Louis Tion or Juan Marichal and trying to ch- trying to make the ball break and learn how to throw a curveball. And he said there was plenty of time for that, but every time you throw a pitch, there needs to be a purpose to it, and you need to prove you can throw strikes first. And that's where kind of the less is more 
concept came in as well uh, as I probably jump ahead that on you That was the here. other one. You got me. Yeah, there you go. You weren't even staring at my notes. You, you, you thought with me there. Less is more is the second thing. Yeah, and that, that was really develop your control. Uh, it's okay to back off a little bit until you get your control down and, and get precision down and how important that is and the ability to change speeds was so important to him as well. And he was a student of the game. He was an amateur pitcher, you know, growing up in the Kansas City area, but he he read a lot of books, he studied the game, he watched a lot of baseball, and uh, he still does to this day. The Education of a Pitcher is the subtitle of this book, which again is called Full Count by David Cohn and Jack Curry from Grand Central Publishing. The education part, here's a line that I, that I took from this that uh, I want you to expand on it for me. If a pitcher isn't trying to swipe something valuable from other pitchers, he's being careless. So it's not just what you're doing every five days. The other 80% of the time, you have to be paying attention as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I, I couldn't stress that more, rather. Uh, starting pitchers pitch 30 times a year. There's 130 or plus games where you're watching. And if you're not studying Greg Maddox or somebody like that or in today's current game, if you're not watching Max Scherzer in every little thing he does and how he goes about getting out left-handed hitters or right-handed hitters and what his style is, then you're, you're, not, you're not doing it right. You, you, there is so many things that I learned just by watching some of the great pitchers of my generation, whether it was Pedro Martinez or Greg Maddox, and two of the best I ever saw. And, and watching them and how they worked uh, certainly was a, was a big part of the learning process. Even you have to start with great talent. If you don't have great talent, it's hard to, to do much with it. But you have to mold that. And the pitching coaches, you seem to have kind of an unusual relationship with your pitching coaches. And you ended up boiling it down to saying, it's my career. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. That makes it hard to kind of work with a pitching coach sometimes, doesn't it? It does. And uh, part of that was, um, you know, being a little naive at times too, being young and, and headstrong and, but at the same time, there, there was there was a real clash in terms of, you know, mechanically what was the right way to do it. And, and I just never believed in sort of a cloning process where every pitcher has to have these mechanics or this style or get your arm up on top and throw the ball downhill. I, I just never bought into that. I'm kind of glad that I, I pushed back, you know, when I was a teenager uh, coming up in the Royal system because that's the style that served me well my whole career, and that's the style I think has kind of been validated. Uh, even Pedro Martinez threw kind of sidearm or down to up rather than up to down, and several other pitchers, even Max Scherzer in today's game has kind of a similar style or arm action, uh, uh, a non-traditional over-the-top type power pitcher. So. Yeah, I, I'm glad I did push back at times uh, because there's more than one way to go about this, and there's a lot of different body types. There's a lot of different release points. There's a lot of different styles. It's funny. When I talk to people about pitchers that are either amateurs or in the minors, and they describe them with your body type, it's not always a compliment to a guy they feel is going to be a durable starting pitcher because you know they feel you know the potential to break down. They want to maybe turn him into a reliever. The idea of making those 30 starts, as you say, and throwing a lot of innings, you know, so maybe that's part of the clashes you had too, because it's not just in this day and age. Maybe in that day and age too, people didn't think a guy with your physique could hold up. That's a big part of it, without a doubt. I mean, you're constantly scrutinized in this game, and as you said, it can be, it can be, uh, you know, the kind of uh, raw and uh, unemotional, and when you try to evaluate human beings, and yeah. uh, it, it can can hurt your feelings at times. <laughs> Certainly, my feelings were hurt at times, and I expressed myself and. I'm, and wasn't afraid of it, and at times wrongly. Uh, but 
uh, you, without a doubt, there's so many different types of pitchers out there. If you look at a Marcus Stroman mm -hmm. and his body type, certainly uh, under 5'10", maybe 5'9", Sonny Gray's in that category, too. There's several starting pitchers out there that kind of break the mold. Uh, not everybody has to be a Greek god. Not everybody has to be 6'5 and 230. You know, it's, uh, you can do it with style. You can do it with deception. You can do it with changing speeds. We're built roughly the same, but it didn't work for me. This is why I'm sitting here interviewing you about it. Uh, one theme that I, that I kind of picked up on that I thought was interesting was trust. There's a lot of trust between you and your relationship with your teammates and with your catchers. But you used the word trust specifically twice when you told two stories. One, about Dan Quisenberry with you as a young pitcher in Kansas City. And then when you got traded over to the Mets, uh, Bob Ojeda also using the word trust. Tell me why that was so important in your education of a pitcher. Well, when you're part of a major league team, you know, you're at the highest level and you're playing for keeps. People's jobs are on the line. Uh, there's championships on the line, and there's a real bond and camaraderie that gets built up, and that's where the trust factor comes in. And major league players want to know that they can trust you, that you you're going to be not only on the field a good competitor, that you're not going to give up, or that you're not going to you're not going to waver when the adversity comes, and then also off the field as well. Uh, there's a responsibility and an accountability that comes with it, and that's part of the. The rawness of the book is I'm accountable and admits a lot of the mistakes I made along the way and the lessons I learned. But yes, you do need that trust value, not only from a team standpoint, but individually with your catcher when you're pitching in individual games. You really need that, that weight off of your shoulders, uh, that burden on your mind of sometimes I can just follow the lead from the catcher. Sometimes I'll just take take all of that pressure off of my mind and, and uh if need be, then I can shake them off later in the game. But it's kind of a dance back and forth where, where the catcher leads and then the pitcher can take the lead. And you kind of dance back and forth. And that's, that's when you really you, know, you, you have that trust factor going. I thought another interesting element of trust was the story you tell about Gaylord Perry. You come up and you're rehabbing with the Royals in 83, and Perry is a 20-plus-year veteran, a 300-game winner with the Royals, well-known for, for throwing the spitter and doctoring the ball. And you tried like hell to get him to teach it to you, but he didn't because he wanted you to trust what you have. Exactly. It was a really important lesson at a young age that, uh, you know, I needed to learn the finer points of the game before I advanced to, uh, you know, to doctoring the baseball or learning a, a spitball. So uh, he, he really kind of schooled me without me even knowing it at the time because I kept pestering him. I kept following him around the clubhouse and kept asking him questions. And he was he – was, uh, very gracious, very, very honest and open, but he just told me flat out, you're not ready for that. You need to learn your craft first, and you need to protect your arm first before you start messing around with what I'm trying to do at this point in my career, is, is how he put it. So I never forgot that, and uh, there, there, was, there was so much wisdom coming from him that I didn't even realize until later on that it, the light bulb went off and said, oh, that's what Gaylord Perry was talking about. Or, or other people like Dan Quisenberry or Keith Hernandez or other, other uh, players I was around that were leaders. There's another guy that you give a lot of credit to that I got to know as a, as a scout uh, over the last several years, and he passed away a year ago. Bruce Keeson was a pitching coach for you your second time in Kansas City, helped you win a Cy Young Award. You had already established yourself as one of the 
better pitchers in the league at the time, but he had a really good influence on you and I would say a unique relationship because you didn't always get along with your pitching coaches that we just talked about. It's really true. He was uh, somebody I really clicked with and he loved my style and when he saw me trying to, to improvise or throw from different arm angles or throw all of my pitches to both sides of the plate, he bought into it and he helped me kind of re, you know refine that theory of the X game so to speak where you can throw pitches that move right to left and left to right on both sides of the plate with all of your pitches so whether it's a two seam fastball that breaks left to right and then a front door slider on a right-handed hitter from a right-handed pitcher uh, you create the X that way and the same way on the other side of the plate when you're facing left-handed batters and we just kind of uh, clicked and, and came up with this plan and then when you have the confidence of your pitching coach and then the catcher comes into play and then you're all on the same page and this is the formula we're going to work boy you can really make headway at that point and uh, that it was uh, as if uh, I felt liberated my style was validated yeah. not only validated but also um, taken to the next level with with the help of Bruce Keeson and that was the Cy Young Award winning year in 1994 with the Royals. And if you want to maybe uh, equate some of that to guys you see today, Adam Ottavino looks to me like a guy who plays that game perfectly. Absolutely. It, it was a game, it was a type of, these type of pitches were frowned on in the 80s by pitching coaches, and nowadays they are commonplace. And Adam Ottavino is a perfect example of that. Uh, you can throw pitches to start right at the batter. You know, if you're a right-handed pitcher and a right-handed batter, you can start your slider right at his hip and break it over the inside corner and get the batter to flinch. And that's a, a, such an effective weapon. And most old-school pitching coaches would be afraid of that location because it's a home, potential home run type location for batters. But batters are dug in so hard, they dive a little bit more than they used to. They, they have much more plate coverage. So exposing the inside corner with front door breaking pitches is a very effective strategy. And probably Adovino is the best example of that in today's game. On the cover of the book, Full Count, You Are a Yankee. You tell a lot of stories about the championship years of the Yankees and all your teammates and, and some of the different things that, that you guys all went through together. But you spent a good amount of time on your Mets years, too, where you kind of grew up in the game. Uh, I would say after reading it, I, it came across to me as you were equal parts proud and embarrassed about things that went on during your Mets career. Is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say. When you, and it became increasingly uh, more clear to Jack and, and me when we went through this that you know, we're going to have to peel back some layers here and, and we're not going to gloss over any of these experiences on and off the field. And certainly the the Mets were a dramatic group of, group of players back then. They played the game hard. Uh, they partied hard off the field. They're there's still issues going on today with some of the 86 Mets. So uh, without a doubt, it was a big part of my life. I love playing for the Mets. Um, I was devastated when I got traded from the Mets, and and I'm thankful to have those years. There were some growing years. A lot of mistakes were made, but certainly as you revisit those years, even though it's over 30 years ago back in the Mets days in the 1980s, uh, it, it's something that I still feel today. I, I still relive those moments and still relive those mistakes. Over the course of about three, three and a half years after you got traded from the Mets, you had the label of hired gun. And you you embraced that. But along with that, it seemed that there were a lot of uh, insecurities and a lot of self-doubt that come with there, That title has some bravado to it, and you carried that well. But inside, the wheels were turning. They really were, and that, that's another reason I, I think this book is unique is that uh, – you know, I, I'm honest about the vulnerabilities and the insecurities that you feel, even though you, you maybe you didn't know it or maybe I didn't express it. But 
there was tremendous pressure in a lot of those games, and I certainly had a lot of self-doubt and a lot of anxiety uh, issues uh, throughout those years, and uh, I think that led to kind of that, that chapter on the pitcher-catcher relationship and, you know, how I could be tough on some catchers at times and then other catchers I, I would click with. And sometimes it was my fault. Sometimes it was just uh, a relationship issue, a uh, communication issue. But without a doubt, I th- I'm, I'm happy that, you know, I'm able to, to show kind of a, a real honest look at some of the insecurities and emotions you go through. You, uh, towards the end of the book, you, you wrote this. You said, it took me about 10 years to put my baseball career in perspective. What did you mean? Well, I, th- I you know, I, I think part of it is is that it's hard to process what you're going through at the time. Um, you know, I equated to Derek Jeter, and I said this about Derek Jeter. I hope he enjoyed the ride. Yeah. Because he, you just turn the page, and I, I describe him as the best turn the page guy I've ever seen. Whereas you forget about yesterday, you forget about tomorrow. You stay in the present. Yeah. We got a game. We have a game to play, and we have to play and win. But that kind of mentality, as good as it is for production on the field for self-awareness and for awareness of your career it, it's it's the opposite end of the spectrum and a lot of times players uh you know they get out of the game and they're kind of lost they lose that structure they have a hard time processing what their career was like because it was such a grind the whole time that you didn't really enjoy it along the way and i was no different i was obsessed with finishing my career on a good note and it didn't work out that way for me and that left me damaged a little bit emotionally, and it took me a while to process it. I've had this conversation with CeCe Sabathia, and you've seen the transition he's been able to make in the last few years of his career, getting healthy and then changing the style from what he started with. But we talked about innings and just logging innings. And I said to him, I said, when I noticed that he had passed Pedro Martinez in innings pitched on the list, I had to think to myself, not Pedro Martinez in his prime. That number that he passed was Pedro Martinez at the end. And I said, you know, you don't, you don't sprint across that line that you finish at. You usually fall across it. It's a lot different perspective when you're at the end of the road as opposed to when you're in your prime years and everything just feels like it's coming on so well. It's so true. And, uh, you know, that's why I sort of understood why Mike Bicino walked away after winning 20 games because he knew exactly what you're talking about, that it could get ugly from here on out. And he wants to walk away on his own terms. And that's what's so impressive about CC Sabathia as well, that he made the adjustments and that in his last year, he's still very effective, still leader in that clubhouse, still pitching big games. So I, I tip my hat to CC. That's hard to do. I know how, how difficult it is to do what he has done and yet still be as productive as he is right now. There are two things that stuck out to me in this book that I didn't know. Now, maybe they came out other times and I just kind of missed them, but I'm like, wow, this is really interesting to me. You've always talked about, even going back, while you were playing, you mentioned how you were a frustrated sports writer. Like, you would talk to the media more than any other player because you kind of felt a kinship with everybody. But what I didn't know is that before you got drafted, you had already actually enrolled in journalism classes at Missouri, a very good uh, journalism program. You were headlong in this. You were, you were ready to make this your profession. I really was because even at that point, I had no clue as, as if – as to if I was good enough to make it or not. Mm-hmm. And so I, my whole goal, goal all along was to get a scholarship to college and try to pay my way through journalism school. Yeah. I, I was going to find my way to the big leagues one way or another, <laughs> whether it was covering it or pitching. But even throughout my minor league career, I had doubts as to whether I was good enough to make it. And I had injuries along the way. And uh, there, there's a lot of insecurities and a lot of self-doubt along the way. So certainly plan B was always going to be to try to go back to school and go to that journalism school which was really kind of plan a at the beginning because i didn't i didn't understand you know if i was good enough to even make it in the minor leagues 
Something else that um, I didn't know, and again, maybe it came out and I missed it, but Bobby Valentine called you when he got the Red Sox job after the 2011 season. He wanted you to be his pitching coach. Uh, he did. He called me and asked me to if I'd be interested in the job or not. And, so, and uh, at that point, I had some personal issues I was going through, and I wasn't quite ready to make that full commitment, to jump in fully immersed uh, into a very difficult job. And so I never really interviewed for the job. But it was it's always flattering when you get that call, when somebody mm-hmm. thinks that maybe you're qualified to be a big league pitching coach. Uh, um, that you know that's uh, that would have been a, a career path that would have been a different direction for me. But uh, it was flattering to, to, to at least uh, hear that call. It's a different job nowadays, but as a guy who has the professional experience, the knowledge of mechanics, and the ability to really understand and embrace analytics and really dig into that side of it, do you want to be a pitching coach? You know, actually, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I would never say never. Uh, I've kind of been re-energized with some of the, the new metrics or mm-hmm. some of the new analytics and, you know, the high-speed cameras that, yeah. that, that show you spin rate. And you can actually design pitches on the side in practice sessions. You can work with pitchers in the offseason with some of this new technology and really get instantaneous feedback. And there's certain things that you just can't see with your naked eye. You do actually. It's nice to have high-speed cameras and computers and and, and, and biomechanic readouts that show you exactly where the breakdown is in, in your delivery. And uh, to me, that's energizing. That's new toys to play with that I wish I would have had, you know, during my career. So, yeah, I, I would never say never, but I, I am fascinated with, with uh, some of the new technology that's out there. The book kind of weaves in and out, but always comes back to your perfect game. And there's a real interesting story that, that you and Jack really get into in detail about before the ninth inning and you staring yourself in the mirror and kind of daring yourself to go back out there and finish the job. Um, is there one vivid memory or is that it that you put the, like something that just, when you think back, like you can actually feel the sweat on your brow or the, uh, with the ball in your hands at that particular moment, what's the one most vivid memory of that day for you? Well, yeah, it's, there's so many throughout the day. I mean, before the game, watching Yogi ride around in the in a convertible on the outfield warning track was was something that that was so so joyous to see. Yeah. That conversation in the mirror after eight innings is something I'll never forget. Talking to myself out loud yeah. in the bathroom at Yankee Stadium, um, and just the first thoughts in my mind were negative. Were okay. You need to prepare yourself in case you blow this. You know, if you hang a slider and you give this up, how are you going to react? And, and that it was almost slapping myself in the face. No, no, you can do this. That's not what you need to be thinking. And it, it really was kind of a good and bad, positive and negative thoughts running through my mind at the same moment. It was really a battle, and the anxiety was building. And as you can imagine, after eight innings of yeah. a perfect game, you got three more outs to go. You're 36 years old. It's Yogi Berra Day. Yeah. This can't really be happening, right? It's, it's like a script from Hollywood. So, yeah, it, I, I thought it was interesting, to be honest, about how anxious I was and some of the anxiety you feel and some of the insecurities that you feel. You know, and I just thought of this as you were mentioning it. Every time I see uh, the Kevin Costner movie, For Love of the Game, I think of you, the parallels of an older guy. And every time he sits down between innings, his mind wanders to all the various parts of his life. Did you ever have a moment watching that that, that you kind of thought, thought the same thing? Uh, yeah, I really did. You know, actually, Kevin Costner, he called me after that, after my perfect game. Because uh, oh, his, yeah. his movie was pretty, it was about the same time his movie came out. And then, then I threw mine. So it, 
it was very gracious to get a thing, you know, kind of a congratu congratulations note from him. But yeah, there are times like that when your mind wanders. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, and that's why I say starting pitchers, there's nothing like it in any sport. You know, there's so much responsibility, accountability. You're involved with every pitch and every pitch means something. And even a quarterback can hand off the ball sometimes. Even LeBron James can stand on the other side of the court and let Dwayne Wade go to work. Uh, he can take a break here and there. Starting pitchers can't, and it, it can drive you crazy. You can lose your mind out there sometimes, especially <laughs> if it's not going your way. And maybe it's just me being flaky, but I, you know, I thought that was the interesting part of the book to show you kind of uh, – you know how your mind can wander. How you you know how you can kind of lose your mind at times you know, and lose it to the to the pressure at times. It's called Full Count: The Education of a Pitcher. It's from Grand Central Publishing. David Cohn wrote it along with Jack Curry. Uh, thanks for sharing some thoughts on it. It's a wonderful Father's Day gift if you haven't picked it up already. Because as we talked about earlier, there's a wonderful father-son element to this. And thank you for not only taking the time here, but continuing our education every night you're on the broadcast it's wonderful to watch you i'm glad you're getting more games than you have in the past it's uh, it's fun to watch and listen to you and, and thanks for uh, sharing it all with us my pleasure sweeney good to be on with you and there you have it once again the book is called full count the education of a pitcher available now from grand central publishing anywhere books are sold it is indeed in great part a father's son story that makes for a good father's day present happy shopping happy reading and until next time thank you again for listening Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.